when you're down and trouble and you need some love and care and nothing well nothing is going right close your eyes and think of me and soon I will be I'm C.J. Layton coming to you from inside the Phantom Radio Studio, home of the premier radio bowling talk show. Long ago, Bowler's Journal International called Phantom Radio a pioneer in the field of bowling podcasts because the show is regularly scheduled at the same time each week. PBA Hall of Famer Len Nicholson started the show in 2002. Since then, he's recorded over 1,100 shows featuring over 400 different guests, a literal who's who in bowling. So, Phantom fans, let's welcome our host, Len Nicholson, the Phantom. Well, thank you, CJ. And a reminder that Phantom Radio is presented by the Cagle Company, the number one lane maintenance company in the world. Well, for those of you that follow our show, you know that sometimes we feature special shows, and this will be one of those. An all-time great PBA Hall of Famer passed away last month. We would like to honor him with this tribute show. And the bowler was Harry the Tiger Smith. And to help me with this tribute is PBA and USBC Hall of Famer Larry Lickstein. Larry is one of the best storytellers because of his fabulous memory, his passion, and his sense of humor. Well, Larry bowled against the Tiger, and he worked with him on the PBA staff. So let's get him out here and hear more about Mr. Harry the Tiger Smith. Hello, Lynchy, and thanks for being here. Can, can you tell us a couple of your first memories of the Tiger? Well, the Tiger, Len, um, God bless the Tiger. Absolutely great, great performer uh, in the early 60s when I was a young boy. And uh, vividly remember championship bowling in the late 50s with Fred Wolf watching Harry. And immediately the first thing that came to your mind was, was the second he left the ball, the ball got off his hand. He was running left, right, or backwards or jumping in the air. And it was every shot. And then of course you had Bluth who was very sedate and Carter who was very sedate and very methodical. And then you had whoever would get on one knee and run him out a little. And of course, Carmen was a great showman, but Smitty, you know, did it different than all of them. He ran left and right. Like he was running out of a bank robbery. If you watched him run, you would think he just robbed a bank and he's running away with the money. Uh, and I loved that as a kid. He was very animated. And that was the most wonderful thing about that show was the, the different personalities. And luckily for me, I met all of them other than a handful. But it was just great to, to watch him as a young boy. And he was one of the men that helped mold me as a young boy. I, I wanted to be a pro bowler because of men like Harry Smith. You know, you did obviously became a pro bowler. That was in your genes. You had to be a pro bowler with as much knowledge and, and as good as you were as a young man. But, you know, when you finally went on the PBA tour, I'm sure you bowled against Smitty, right? Well, yeah, he was sort of on the downside in my first event, and I'll never forget it. The left-handers, they took 16 finalists and 11 were left-handed. And I ended up bowling for the title. I was an amateur bowler, and I, I – I bowled Don Helling. I had to beat him the last game by 55 pins. I beat him by 13. But I remember that night after the tournament was over, I was staying at the, at the uh, Howard Johnson's in Southern Connecticut. And I went into the pan game 
and they were all in there. Vern Downing and Smitty and Goose and uh, Jimmy Certain and uh, several other scoring players, legends of that day. Smitty, Smitty was not friendly. And I say this out of deep respect. Obviously, he's passed on, but he was not friendly towards rookies. And he wasn't too friendly towards left-handed rookies. <laughs> and keep in mind, every one of them took a paycheck from him. There was Gerhardt taking them and McGrath taking them and Davis taking them and Glover taking them. And all of a sudden, I'm in a tournament and I finished second. And, you know, when you were on the downside of your career and every rookie came out, they not only represented a threat to, to, to make some money, but if they did, they knocked sometimes a veteran out of the cash where – that $250, $300 check for 42nd place really meant a lot. So there was the somewhat, I wouldn't say resentment, but it was a standoffish scenario because they were the stars of the early 60s. And all of a sudden, the kids that they helped cultivate like me were now coming out there trying to take their money. So if you look at it that way, and, and people should, it was a, it was a, a, a situation that wasn't comfortable. But by 1969... I had known him a little better, and I saw him in Redwood City at Mel's in my first tournament as a touring pro. I went out there uh, about 18 months after my first event. He did say hello to me. Uh, we didn't talk much. Uh, it was a very high-scoring event in Redwood City. He did make the cut. Two weeks later, I bowled for the title in Portland. He was nice to me. He, he said, nice bowling kid. I mean, it wasn't an over-friendly relationship like I had at that time, like with some pros like Bill Johnson. The late Bill Johnson was wonderful, and uh, some of the other ones that that I knew well, like Ralph Engen and Tita, they were they were pretty close to me and, and pretty comforting when I bowl well. And Billy Hardwick was so such a dear friend. Smitty was somewhat standoffish, but I can tell you this: I bowled the event where I believe he made his last televised finals, which was the Don Carter Classic at Madison Square Garden. And I signed to the AMF staff that week at a big press luncheon, and then went over there and practiced on Tuesday and really bowled horrible Wednesday and Thursday. And he made TV. I believe he lost the first match. I think he qualified fourth or fifth and lost. And I believe I did bowl the event where he made his last ABC Sports telecast with uh, Billy Whalo and Chris Schenkel. He looked great that week. I remember everybody marveling at the fact that he looked fantastic. He had eliminated the hop, just pure, pure at the line, running out every shot like he always did. What a showman. My God, did he put a show on when he was on the lane. So just exciting to watch. And for us young men, one of our idols, you know, of the 60s, don't, no doubt, you know, it was Weber, Carter, and Smith, as far as I was concerned, and Carmen. I can't know any. I did say that in my PBA interview with Campos. I forgot Carmen. Carmen was obviously, and Bluth, you know, probably with the top five of that generation. Lillard, you know, was right there. What a group of men, Lenny. My God, were they wonderful. Oh, they were fantastic. Wonderful. Now, I was doing some research on Smitty myself before the show, and I got the old book from the 60s. I mean, he was there every week. Unbelievable. He oh, was he, a, was, he was unbelievable. You yeah. know, a lot of people don't realize this, but the PBA changed the format for the winter tour of 63. They dropped qualifying. It's the only time that they really ever did that for a complete tour. And he led, and he told me this, and I believe it. Of course, it was after a few toddies for both of us, but my memory's still pretty good. That he led every he led every qualifying of the ten winter stops of '63. They dropped the wood. He would come out the next day and lose his first three and shoot six twenty and go from literally beating him for two days 
to all of a sudden he was in 13th or 14th because he was 0-3, and, and that would fry him. He would he would get he would go off on that mentally, which a lot of people would. Right. You know, you beat him for two days, they drop the pins, all of a sudden you come out the next day, the lanes are a little different. You know, you hang some tens, you hang some fours, and then you make a mistake, it's you know, a baby split or an eight ten or a five seven or whatever. And you know, again, he was bowling Carter, Weber, and Blutes for a living, and they jumped on you if you made a mistake. You know, if you if you were a little down on yourself, you had no chance. They would sense it immediately. They were like sharks. They'd shoot 240 at you in a heartbeat. One thing's for certain, we all know, everybody that knew him and watched him, uh, he was fantastic. What a boulder. What a horse. <laughs> he was one ultimate competitor. You know, um, later on, you know, when you started working with the PBA, and then Harry Golden, he hired Harry to be the assistant tournament director, so... That meant you worked with Harry on the same staff. What was he like to work with? Well, he was unbelievable. He had this uncanny sense of humor. And, you know, when the PBA had its first Hall of Fame induction in 75, you know, I was there. I wouldn't have been there because I wasn't a touring player anymore. But as a staff member, and I wasn't eligible for the tournament champions because people had run around me with only my one win. But he had an acceptance speech. Now, you got to understand, I wanted to tell you this because the audience should hear this. This is historic. Keep in mind, the last major Hall of Fame that was founded before the PBA was the USBC, now, or then the ABC, in 1941. So this is Bowling's second Hall of Fame, uh, the, 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 the USBC, ABC, and then PBA, some 34 years later. So we're at the Firestone Country Club in Akron, and getting in that night is Weber, Carter, Bluth, Waylou, Smith, Pisano, and Esposito. You talk about <laughs> a heavyweight night and Smitty now's off the tour. He owns his bowling center in skinny Adels, New York. And you know, his bowling career is over. He knows it. Everybody knows it. He's got a little eight laner up there in the finger lakes region. And they call his name out and he comes up and there's a great round of applause. Now keep in mind, I don't know if he was first, but you know, Carter's up there. Weber's up there. Booth's up there. You know, they're more business-like Smitty's sort of a, a little looser type of personality. And he gets, the ring handed to him one of them little ring boxes. The little ring boxes look like mini coffins. You open them up, they, the top springs up, and they're like velour inside. You know, they're they're a coffin for a frog. You know, so <laughs> he pops the box open, he takes the ring out, and he talks like this. He goes, he goes, hey Pards, how you doing, Pardsies? And he says, I, I like this ring. And he's on the microphone now. And I'm imitating him. He's on the microphone. He goes, ah. I love this ring. It's it's really a nice ring. It, it, it looks like it's gold. And, oh, it's got a diamond in it. And, oh, <laughs> it says BBA Hall of Fame on it. And, oh, I just looked inside of it, and it has my name, Harry Smith. And, boy, this is a nice ring. And he looks at Eddie Elias in front of 300 people. And he says, Eddie, Eddie, how much do I owe you for this ring? <laughs> and the place and – the, and the place – goes into orbit. I mean, the roar is a roar. And then he starts blinking and gives you that little grin where he'd blink and give you that smile. Yeah. Like he, he knows he got you. He knows he got Eddie. He knows he got the audience. He knows he got Weber and Carter and Salvino because none of them would say this. They're up there on that stage. None of them. No one would do that to Eddie Elias but Harry Smith. And that's why I always say there was nobody like Harry. 
I wouldn't do it. You wouldn't do it. You know, you were up on that stage. You wouldn't say that to Eddie. I wouldn't say it. Weber wouldn't say it. Carter wouldn't say it. Smitty said it. <laughs> yeah, he, he was such a character. You know, this is something, man. This, this show right now, I know he's looking down on us because when we started the show, my my uh, my smoke alarm went off, and I don't have time to get up there and change it. And we're letting it go. It's tweeting every once in a while. Hey, I know that's Smitty doing that to us. Unreal. Can you hear that's it? it? That's him. Make that's him making sure that we uh, we tell the story correctly. We don't over exaggerate a little, which sometimes I might have been been accused of that. But I'm trying to be as sharp as I can here because naturally I've been thinking about this since you got a hold of me last week. And uh, I must thank you, number one, for allowing me to speak about this man because. Um, there's, you know, there's several of us still alive and we all, when we lose somebody, you know, we grieve. I grieved last week. I'm grieving today, uh, you know, for the, for the loss of Roy Buckley. Uh, uh, and we're losing our friends more so than ever in the last year, Rich Carubin, Mark Fay, and, and my dear friend, Mike Collins, and so many more in the country. I'm sort of numb from it, you know, because every time my phone's calling me from California or somewhere, I'm saying, oh, no, who, who's going who are they going to tell me about? And I got the news about Smitty uh, from Johnny Campos and, and Dave Sutar, who both loved Smitty and were, were with Smitty. You know, Johnny Campos was tour director. And, of course, Soupy was out there for 50 years. You know, he, he knew Smitty well. Exactly. But um, – well, what else you got for me? Well, tell me what else you want me to do. I, I, I got to tell you something. I got a little surprise for you. First of all, you know, you don't have to thank me for having you on this show, Pards. You, you're the spokesman for the PBA. You're like a walking history man with, you know, all, all the guys. You're bold with them. Uh, you're the number one. I want to say, like, you said, the master of ceremonies all the time for all the big TV shows. That's what you are. So I got a little surprise for you. And you just mentioned it. Uh, we did, unfortunately, lose another one of our fellow friends, uh, Roy Buckley. And uh, next week, I want to have you back on, and I want you to talk about Roy, all right? I would love to. I just hope I, I'm still a little little shaky about Roy, so don't don't mind me. Um, I know. I know. Uh, I've, been, you know. I've been in contact with Alice. And, yeah. And Alice is a beautiful, beautiful lady. And I knew Roy and Alice for 52 years. Yeah. And of course, I knew Smitty for 54 years. So, you know, for me and you and yep. and the ones of us, that God willing, have stayed alive, you know, um, at least for now. And uh, <laughs> it's a hard one. But it is. I'm it's... honored simply because I love them dearly and they were part of my life and they were part of the lives of hundreds of thousands, millions of Americans in their careers that yep. watched Pro Bowlers tour. So, you know. If somebody's going to talk about him, it may as well be the guys that traveled with him that knew them well. Exactly. That's the way I look at it. You, you know, know uh, okay. we, go ahead, we go ahead. We don't have a guarantee, you know, tomorrow we never know. Roy did have a, a long life. He was 77 years old. The good news is he didn't really suffer a lot, you know. So God knows he's up in heaven with, you know, Weber and Carter and Hardwick and all the guys and Smitty. He's having a good time. I'm sure he's forming a card game up there because he was really a character. And I know you got some great stories about Roy. Oh, I got some great stories and they're funny and I'll be honored to tell them, but getting back to Smitty, you know, working with him 
for those 300 extra tournaments. Keep in mind, I was with them at 300 national tour stops, and yeah. uh, and I was a staff member with them, and so were you, and so naturally Harry Golden, and and of course um, our lane maintenance crew, the lane maintenance guys of that era, Tommy Zader and Cliff Saliba. God bless Cliff Saliba, who we lost. But when you think of Smitty, there is this 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 mischievous character who loved to be a joker who loved to travel the United States, who loved his fellow proprietors that he knew when he bowled. So we would go into a house and the tournament would be sponsored by Teddy Hoffman and Earl or, or the Ducat family in Toledo or Bobby Quishan up there in Royal Scott. And Smitty knew these guys and bowled with these guys. So those weeks for him were very special. And I know it was special for them because they saw him a different way. You know, they saw him as Harry Golden's assistant tournament director. And that alone, a lot of people don't realize what a prestigious heading that is, that he, he was the tournament director with Harry for 300 PBA stops. Yeah. And uh, he was a character in every city and very well known in every city. And, uh, you know, he, he would like to sit in the lounge, you know, with Buckley and Flanagan and the boys and, and, and drink his beers and, that's okay. You know, that was legal. We had beer sponsors. You know, we had the false stash. We had the Budweiser's. We may as well support our sponsors. So, you know, I, one thing's for certain, that, that alone was a show in the lounge. Uh, if it was the right night in that lounge with some of the characters in there, and it started, and you, you get the flanger you get the flanger going and Smitty going, and, and you know, the Soper would be in there and Bowker and several other boys, myself included. <laughs> and um, what a crew! What a crew that was when qualifying ended at night, and uh, you didn't want to go back to your room yet, you know. Exactly. And you would just sit and start talking about the game and joking and laughing. It was hysterical. Uh, and the audience, what we found was over the years, people that liked the, the nightlife, that that liked to have a drink with their friends, would come in and mingle simply because they knew who the, the people were, that it was going to be a lot of fun. Like we get to the world open in Chicago and Rick Barbera would roll out the red carpet. Yeah. Again, we'd get over to Daryl's, you know, in Toledo for the national championship. And that little bar right there, right behind 71 and two or 63 and four, the end pair was packed with guys just sitting there. You know, Tragley <laughs> would be in there. And all we would do was laugh and talk and tell bowling stories and it made the tour a very wonderful life, especially, you know, you know, keep in mind, you're living in a hotel, you're living in a parking lot like me, and you're away from your family, and your family was now the Boulders. It was a family. And Harry Golden was, you know, the leader of the family. Boy, and then were we lucky. Oh. You know, I, I thank God for my life out there. I really do. Yeah, me too. Really you know, the camaraderie was unbelievable. In fact, you know, the, I can say this, I've said it before, you know, the job I had was miserable because you had to make everybody happy, and that's impossible. Uh, I quit that job five times, but it was such a great job with all those guys. I went back five times, so I had to be a little crazy, right? <laughs> well, everybody loved you, and I know if they said something to you that wasn't right, they would usually feel bad about it. I think it was more emotion and more suffering financially, and obviously, when you had a family to feed and Sure. And there was something you didn't like, you know, you vented it and you, you probably said things you shouldn't say, but you know, when you're a poor paying sport, like we were uh, in the seventies, you know, Eddie Elias used to say, 
There's the totem pole of sports, and we're a beer sport, but we're the best beer sport. And of course, above us was the the liquor and the champagne sports, like tennis, golf, and and uh, you know all the uh, you know all the individual sports where uh, these athletes got paid you know millions, where we were bowling for thousands. And um, but when you look back at it, and you in retrospect, you ask yourself, oh, would you do it over again? And in my case, I'd be there right now in 1967 in Plainville, Connecticut, bowling my first event with Smitty and Weber and Carter and Bluth. They were there. I, I probably would too, Pards. And you know, I understood those guys. And most most of the time, I'm going to say 98 percent of the time, uh, the following week, these guys would come. Whoever gave me a hard time, they'd apologize and they'd tell me, you know, I got troubles here, I got troubles there. It's not you, blah blah blah. And you fell in love with all these guys and and you felt for them. So that was just part of the game. I'll tell you but, one. I'll tell you one about bowling balls, which I know you'll love, and so are the audience. A lot of people don't realize that in the very early days of bowling, there was a signature Ned Day ball. And I believe that Buddy Bomar had a signature on air balls, but they were hard rubber. And then, of course, in the 60s, a Carter signed with Ebonite had the Don Carter gyro. But Weber didn't get on the AMF ball, the Dick Weber five-star, till 1969. But preceding Weber was Harry Smith with the Columbia Tiger ball. And the way Columbia worked it is they had a Tiger on it, and underneath the Tiger, they had Harry Smith's signature. But they also allowed the ball to be signed by different wholesalers. So Bob Malucci, who owned Bowmaster, the Tiger ball had his name on it. And Fuzzy Shimada, who was out there in Menlo Park uh, in the Bay Area, had the Fuzzy Shimada Tiger ball. And Ronnie Gardern had the, fu- Fuzzy Sh- uh, had the Tiger ball in L.A., and there were several more. And the deal was if you bought like a thousand balls or something, they'd put your name underneath the tiger. And uh, I used a tiger ball in 1967 to win a tournament in Hartford and it had Bob Malucci's name on it. Wow. A lot of people, yeah. A lot of people don't know that history. And the history was if you bought X, you got your name under the tiger. But it was originally the tight line and it was the tiger ball. And, you know, think about this for a minute. How many people do you really know in your life that had their name on a bowling ball? Wayne Webb, Petraglia, Hudson, Belmonte. You're talking, uh, Albie had his name. You're talking a very, a very small, small group. You know, Carter, whoever, Schmitty. A signature on a bowling ball for a pro is an unbelievable accomplishment. And and Schmitty, Schmitty did, you know, 50 years ago, 40, 55 years ago, he had his name on a ball then. My God. And he was a legend. So listen, you know, we can talk about Smitty forever. I'm going to have you back on. We're going to talk some more about yep. Smitty. But but next week, yep. we're going to do Roy Buckley. So I'll get a hold of you about what time we can schedule this, all right? Yes, God God bless the Sphinx. He was, uh, what a sense of humor. And what a fine, fine, wonderful gentleman. Yep. Uh, love. And well, I've got some Buckley stories about what he used to say to me after he would beat me up in a poker game and a few other little things. <laughs> and um, uh, I'll, I, I have some fond memories of Roy. And Thank again, you. Um, you do such a great job. I'm honored that you allowed me to talk about our friends today, Len. Really uh, nice of you, brother. You're the best, Barnes. We 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 lo- we would love to hear your stories and and your memory is fantastic, but. I can tell by the old clock and more, we're out of time for this week. And Phantom fans, how quickly the time flies and we're having fun. So we'd like to pass out a, a message to our sponsors. 
for bringing us back every week and every year. They are Norm and Brad Edelman from the High Roller and Bill and Barbara Christman from Storm Bowling. Also, our newest sponsor, Dave Kowalski, with Auto Value and Bumper to Bumper Auto Parts Stores. He's also the past president of the Michigan High School Coaches Bowlers Association. So until next week, we have Litchie back. We're going to have a tribute show to Roy Buckley. This is The Phantom. When you're down and troubled And you need some love and care And nothing, well, nothing is going right Close your eyes and think of me And soon I